you're relatively new here, I wanted to remind you and introduce myself to you. My name is Dan. I'm to serve as pastor here. I also get the thrill of a lifetime bringing the main Sunday message most every Sunday. We do that out of the Bible. Uh, we're so glad you are here uh, with us today to, to kind of dive right into what the CTC group members were talking about, which is our Sunday message. So uh, you can follow along in the church app. You can click on the weekend and then click on Sunday messages, and you'll see some notes pop up if that helps you follow along closely to learn some stuff. How about this idea? What if on Sundays we focus on learning, not just listening? You like that? I love that idea. Not just, we're not in college undergrad where we're just listening, trying to get it over on Sundays. At least some of you feel that way, right? Instead, when we get together, why not focus on learning? And our hope is that that uh, note-taking app helps you to learn. A long time ago, uh, I moved into a little apartment on 51 Mechanic Street in Baldwinsville, New York. Anybody know where Mechanic Street in Baldwinsville, in Baldwinsville is? We lived across the street from Burger King and Gino and Joe's, and I said, thank you, Lord. You knew where I needed to be. I'm just following your leading. Well, I moved in 1993. I moved in about six months before my new wife moved in. So it was my responsibility to inhabit the apartment, and then a few months later, six months or three, maybe it was three, uh, three months later, I'll say three months later, my newlywed wife joined me. And when she arrived, it didn't take long for the house to kind of fill up with who she was. Um, there slowly emerged some things on the walls. Slowly, what emerged was some furniture in the, in the house. And she thought, you know what would be a good idea? What if we didn't just sleep on a mattress on the floor? I was like, that is brilliant. I'm so glad I married you. Then in comes uh, some of the furniture that we need to live. And then also what's kind of fun for me was not only were there stuff kind of emerging on the walls and furniture that's showing up in the house, but food started to show up in the kitchen. So when my new wife moved in, it didn't take long for her character and for her presence uh, and for her style to kind of take shape and fill the house. And that is exactly how it works when you come to saving faith in Jesus over time, the character, the personality, and the style starts to slowly take over and emerge and take a primary place in your inner life. In your heart, the character of Jesus starts to emerge and show up over time. His character and his presence. And this is the ongoing experience of a Christian. It takes time, but you'll see the evidences that Jesus resides in your soul. When the spirit of Jesus resides in your soul, he redecorates your inner life. He redecorates your character. He redecorates your vision of the world. And he fills our hearts. This is so important for where we're going today. He fills 
our hearts with more and more of his kind of love, his kind of affection for the Father and for people. Uh, And there is some serious doubt. I don't know if you've doubted this, but there is serious doubt whether any of us really grasp the depth and the width, or I should say the profound magnitude of Jesus' love. It's doubtful that we've really grasped it, Uh, especially especially if you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. Country song, do you know that? It's a country song. Anyone know who wrote it? No. Three people wrote it. Anyone know who sings it? Eddie Murphy. Nope, that is, um, it's not Eddie Murphy. Wukun Pa Nub, remember that? Um, No, it was written uh, by three people, but the artist who sang it was Johnny Lee. It was released, anyone know when it was released? In the, how many of you say in the 70s? Really? Some of you are like not even admitting that you were alert in the 70s, right? It was released in 1980, and Johnny Lee sang a song about how treacherous it has been looking for love, but he's looking for love in all the wrong places. That song probably made more famous by the skit, the um, Little Rascals skit on Saturday Night Live, but um, still important to know that this especially is important. Our idea of the love of Jesus expressed while he's with us, so vital, especially if you're wandering around trying to figure out where am I going to get the love that I need? I didn't get it from my parents. I don't get it from my peers, my coworkers. I haven't gotten it where I needed it uh, to come from. I haven't gotten it. So here's what we discovered today in Ephesians chapter three. There's only one love that is better than life, that is enough to meet our needs and satisfy our longings and that love, that kind of love that will never let us go or never let go of us. And that is God's love for us that is in and through Jesus. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while or you've been um, a part of a church family for a while, when you start talking about love, it is so hard to engage because that word has been used, it, that, that word has been said, that word has been kind of uh, saturated your ears, and it's quite possible that it's lost any kind of meaning. My hope and my prayer today and what I'm really believing and trusting is that the Holy Spirit of God would come alive, and that, that the picture, the idea, the, 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 um, the, the absolute, inf- the infinite magnitude of the love of God through Jesus for his creation that reflects his character, his essence of love would come alive in your heart. And, by the way, if you... Um, If you can take this message in, if you can take this message in about the magnitude of God's love, imagine this, imagine, if you can take this in, no more inner emptiness, no more wandering around craving something that you don't have and can't seem to find. Imagine, if you can take this in, you can live in such a way, no more distraction from something that God has provided for you and that you have to have to build your life on. No more distraction, no more emptiness, no more wandering around, no more inner weakness if we grasp this. There is a strength that's available to us. And because of what we find in chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he starts this uh, 
segment here in Ephesians chapter 3, and he starts it this way. He says, when I think of all this, when I think of all this, what is he talking about? Uh, If you're a Bible scholar, you already know what he's talking about. If you've paid real close attention the last few weeks, you may kind of know what he's talking about. But Paul is specifically talking about three things. When he thinks of all this, the first thing he's saying is when he thinks of the idea that God has put Jesus in place to unite and to gather and to reconcile all things, the entire universe, creation, and all of humanity under his authority, when I think of that, and then, he's, and then he's also saying, when I think of this double reconciliation where he doesn't just, God just didn't reconcile humans with the Father in heaven, but he also has reconciled horizontally humans with humans, bringing the outsider Gentiles into right relationship with God along with the Hebrew people, and he's reconciled them together, one new person. And he's also referring to how he is begun miraculously to dwell not just with the Hebrews, but to bring the Gentiles in and now to dwell with them by his spirit in their heart. They're no longer needing to dwell uh, in a temple. God is no longer he himself living and dwelling uh, separately from them in a temple, accessible only to the high priest coming through the law. But instead, now God is filling every believer by his spirit and now God's starting to build a dwelling place that is made up of Jews and Gentiles alike, and God is now with us. And Paul says, when I think of all that, when I try to comprehend all of that, it is absolutely amazing. And I fall to my knees, and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. So let's pause there, because you can't miss this. You can't miss this. Um. Let's be real. You can't miss anything else I say, okay? But here we are. Let's pause. Paul says, when I think of all this, I stop. I fall to my knees. I'm overwhelmed and overtaken. And I start to pray from my knees. And one of the commentators uh, on this passage says this. Don't miss this. This is so easy to miss. This is the kind of verse when you're reading on your own that you skim over. When I think of all this, I fall on my knees and I pray. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus who are emerging new believers who found hope in the gospel through Jesus and have been brought together as one new person with the Jews, and Paul is praying something specific, but he's praying it from prison. He's in prison writing this letter, and I mean... I know I'm a spiritual giant, but this isn't what I'd be praying. Kidding. I know, probably like you, if you were in prison, you'd be praying something more like this. I fell on my knees and I prayed, church in Ephesus, could you please somehow find a way to appeal to the authorities to free me from prison? These circumstances are more than I can bear. But Paul doesn't pray that the Ephesian church would come get him out of prison, he prays that the goodness and the gospel of Jesus would get more into the church while he's in prison. Because in his mind, what's most important were the circumstances inside that prison that ensnared him. What's more important is the circumstances outside in the church that ensnared them and living by the law and the divisions that were happening among them ethnically, politically, socially, racially, 
And so Paul, from from prison, is saying, I'm pleading with the Father that the goodness of Jesus' love would come alive in you and overlooking. Now, I find that. Anyone else find that inspiring? He's not distracted by the circumstances of being stuck in prison. He's moved more so for what the church needs than he is for what he needs. And three times he went on to pray that the church experience power. 16, 18, and 20 in chapter 3, he says, power, empower them, may they be empowered. So he prays a very vivid and very specific uh, prayer for them that includes three parts. It kind of sounds like this. Uh, It sounds like this. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts, that you would be empowered with inner strength, that on the inside that you wouldn't be weak. And when he prays this, he's praying that this would happen to them through the Holy Spirit, right? If you're new to the Christian faith, it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And what Paul is asking for is that they may be fortified. When he says make uh, uh, inner strength, he's praying that they would be fortified. These are great words that he prays, and this is what these mean. That they would be braced, that they would be invigorated, If you're a builder or you know somebody who's a builder or you've been a part of any building, when you start the project, priority one, make sure that the inner foundation is braced, right? Make sure that it's fortified the way that it needs to. He says, may they know the strength of the Holy Spirit's reinforcement. That's the inner strength he's referring to here. And he says, may Jesus make his home. And when he makes his home here, this word that he's using is dwelling place. It is a permanent residence. It's not a partial, uh, temporary residence where we kind of think about Jesus occasionally or we remember him when we were kids or we were brought up to uh, revere Jesus or we have good vibes over Jesus, but instead that he's not a visitor, foreigner, stranger, a tourist passing through our inner life. He's praying that Jesus becomes permanently, makes a permanent dwelling place inside the hearts of the believers, and that they may lay hold ever so firmly by faith to this divine strength and to this divine indwelling. Jesus making his permanent home in our hearts. Now, how does that happen? He says, "May may it happen as you trust in him. Now, the strengthening presence of Jesus in our lives is less mystical than some would think. It's less, I mean, in fact, are there any of you who would, by raising your hand, you would say, Pastor, this is probably true for me too. I have less feelings about Jesus or from Jesus or from the Holy Spirit than I do confident trust. Anybody feel that way? You don't have all the feelings. You have more confident trust. Anybody else? Good. It does not mean uh, this as you trust in him does not mean that you have a um, smile on your face every minute. It is something that we define as a confident trust that we rest in Jesus, right? So trust is a confidence that we rest in Jesus. 
And it does not mean that you can, uh, it's the strength that you can imagine up or the strength that you can talk up enough belief and if you say it right, something's going to happen. Nor does it mean that you have enough focused determination that you can start to twist God's arm to get things to happen because you're so focused with so much determination and so much willpower and you've got the right words together and now you're going to express those words and all of a sudden the hand of God is going to move on your behalf. What he's saying here is trust is just a confidence. It's a resting your hope, resting your confidence in Jesus. And it means that through the Bible, by and through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit strengthens our personal trust in the Jesus that we meet in the Bible. Let me say that again. It means that when you're in the Scriptures and you start to discover Jesus, the Holy Spirit is at work strengthening your confidence in the Jesus that you're discovering in the Bible. And that confidence builds over time as we get to know Him better and better as the Holy Spirit helps us to see who He is and what He does. So there are three power prayers that Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. Three power prayers. And, I mean, I wouldn't mind... I wouldn't mind if you're, you were inspired to pray like Paul prays. I always, I'll tell you, I always need inspiration to pray God's way. I instinctively pray my way, and my way tends to be uh, put me to sleep. My way of praying tends to um, bore me. My way of praying tends to sound repetitious and mindless. So I'm always kind of asking God, help me to pray your prayers. Help me to sing your words and pray your prayers. And here's three power prayers where Paul says, God, may they, the church, know Jesus more intimately. May they rest their confident trust in him. May they get to know the Jesus that comes alive in the scriptures. Um, we've got spotlight. Uh, we've got spotlights here in the church, and most of you don't see them because you're not standing in, in uh, on the platform every Sunday, getting blinded by them, right? So you don't see them. And the reason, another reason you don't see them, is because spotlights aren't supposed to be seen. And um, ten seconds ago, I wish I didn't stare up at that light. Just give me a second for all of you to come back into focus, if you don't mind, if you don't mind. So spotlights aren't made to be seen. Spotlights exist to actually draw your focus on the main target, character, hero on the platform, right? When a spotlight is working, you get a clearer view, you get a better picture, you have a more engagement with the character that's on the stage or the platform that you're trying to watch. It's clearer, it's more alive, it's more vivid, it kind of comes to life better. So the purpose of a spotlight is to elevate, clarify, and help you be more in tune with the focal point, the focal person. And this is important. This is important for us to grasp. This is the primary function and role of the Holy Spirit. The primary function and role of the Holy Spirit is to spotlight Jesus. And you rarely notice the spotlight of the Holy Spirit. But every time you notice Jesus, you are receiving the work of the Spirit to vividly and, and um, 
uh, brightly illuminate and clarify the vision of who Jesus is. Every single disciple and church that makes much of Jesus has the work of the spotlight Holy Spirit at work in their midst among them because it's the work of the Spirit that helps us adore Jesus, see Jesus for who he really is, to come alive and worship Jesus. And it comes by way of the spotlight of the Holy Spirit, bringing that to life. And faith is glorifying Jesus. It is seeing Jesus. It's being uh, uh, enthralled with Jesus. It is being uh, in love with Jesus. And faith is not just an initial reliance upon Jesus for rescuing and for saving faith. It's a continuing faith, a continuing seeing and hoping, seeing and trusting, seeing and growing. You develop over time by the work of the Holy Spirit deep roots in your faith. And this is what Paul is praying. He says, your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And this is how he's praying, that you would have deep roots, that you, in fact, um, would be rooted and grounded in God's love. Rooted, grounded, rooted, grounded. Those are two metaphors he uses. One is agricultural, right? Roots. Some of you have battled some shrubs that you thought you could just pull out by shoveling around the shrubs and grabbing a hold of it and then saying to the kids, come on, grab a branch. We're going to get this out of here. Eight hours later, you've said curse words you never even had, you've never even thought of before. You've called the neighbors names. You've thought about how much would it cost me to buy a four-wheel drive pickup truck or adequate vehicle to pull this out. In other words, when the roots were deeper than you thought, that thing was stronger than it looked. When your roots are deeper than you think, you'll end up being stronger than you ever thought. And it's an agricultural picture that Paul wants us to see that the well-rooted tree and a well-built house has a depth below the surface. And both of them are unseen, but they cause a new strength and a new stability. And love is to be the soil that we build our lives down into. Love is to be the foundation that we build our lives up from. The love of God that he has through Jesus expressed to us, that we live in and that we express. And the second power prayer that Paul prayed was that the people, the, the new believers in the church at Ephesus would grasp and express and experience more of Jesus' love. They would grasp it, they would express it, and they would experience more of Jesus' love. Now, um, are you with me on the idea that when you say, I'm going to blow your mind, we're going to talk about more of Jesus' love, it's kind of like, meh. Are you with me on that? It's like, I mean, of course, we're in church. What do we expect to hear? More of God's love. Somehow, somehow I'm trusting and believing that grasping some of God's love in Jesus, somehow by the work of his spirit, expressing more of his love that is expressed to us in Jesus by the spirit. If somehow we were to experience more of God's love, then we become stronger, our roots get deeper, and our foundation gets more stable. Fascinating to think that so many Christians have shallow roots and a shaky foundation. 
How do you know Christians have a um, shallow roots and shaky foundation? Here's one way. There's a lot of ways that kind of show up. There's lots of evidences. Some people would say, oh, they, um, well, uh, one of the ways I want to focus on, there's actually three ways I want to focus on, but um, shallow roots and shaky foundation is very, very normal and common and easy for us as believers to build our lives on, and we never know it. Just don't know it. And one of the primary ways that it gets exposed is a storm blows through, a dark valley hits our lives, circumstances start to take our breath away, sadness, grief, and loss starts to scorch the earth of our lives, and we start to think things like this. This didn't work. This faith of mine didn't work. This Jesus that I obeyed hasn't come through for me. This um, entire life I've devoted myself to and been faithful in hasn't paid off. And then off we go. Somehow by tragedy, somehow by hurt, heartache, somehow by grief, the enemy of our soul has wedged in and separated us from the faith that we so deeply at one point believed. And I like to think of it as building our lives with shallow roots and shaky foundation. Now, how do I do that? How do I do that? Here's three ways. It's by building our lives on being spiritual, being good, or being right. When we build our lives on one of those three things or two of those three, three, uh, three things or even all of those things, we're going to find it doesn't hold up when life beats us down. It doesn't hold up. And when somebody builds their life on being spiritual, it's, it's the kind of faith where my mystical experiences mean that somehow God is with me or he's for me and I'm asking uh, um, or I'm, I'm hearing I'm going to say the word Jesus-less, and what I mean is I hear voices and have visions, but there's no Jesus. Um, sometimes it means I'm having dreams and coincidences. They don't necessarily lead to any lasting impact, and there's no Jesus, but somehow I interpret that as a faith, a foundational faith, right? So I'm building, try to picture this, and, and we're all susceptible to this, where we're building our lives on dreams, visions, coincidences that have nothing to do with Jesus and leave no lasting impact, but somehow we feel like we're spiritual or we're faith-filled or we're growing in Jesus. Does that make sense? Um, you will hear a lot of this, and some of you, much like um, any one of us, will actually start to express this kind of faith when we're really hurting and we don't know what to say, where to turn, what to do. Oftentimes, it turns up during tragedy. And the things that come into our mind about our Christian faith when we're experiencing tragedy sometimes is very mystical. By, by mystical, I mean in the book of Colossians, Paul talks about all the mystical people in the church of Colossae. And what he's talking about is you're having spiritual experience sans Jesus, but there's no, it doesn't lead you to Jesus. It doesn't elevate Jesus. doesn't focus on Jesus. It's just kind of like it's a spiritual experience. Some of you might understand it culturally as kind of a new agey sensation or vibe or feeling, right? So um, that's one way that we have shallow roots and shaky foundations. It's built on being spiritual. The other way is by being good, that somehow my good intentions or my moral standards or my moral restrictions makes me more acceptable to God than it does someone else. 
or somehow um, my personal righteousness makes me more desirable to God than it makes someone else. So God desires me and accepts me because of my personal righteousness, my high moral standards, my good biblical moral choices. And if I build my faith on that, I am actually developing shallow roots and I am building on a shaky foundation. And the reason is because the only reason we are good in the sight of God is because of our saving faith that joins us with Jesus. And now when he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, right? So the third thing that kind of happens to us in our shallow roots and shaky foundation is when we build on being right. And this is plaguing a lot of us, especially those of us who are American citizens, who are engaged in a culture war, and we're engaged with a culture war who wants to steal our traditions and who wants to undermine our patriotism and somehow wants to uh, um, kidnap our American values. And a lot of us are prone, because we believe we're right, to start treating people poorly to insult people and attack people and and, and verbally condescend people. And the reason that we're motivated to do that is because we've allowed ourselves to treat people that way because we feel like we're right. And if I'm right, then I'm right. And if I'm right, they're wrong. And wrong people deserve a verbal beating, we think to ourselves. Now, I wonder... now. Pastor's not accusing you here. Pastor's inviting you to consider, are there times where being right gives us wild freedom to treat people any way we want to treat them? Or to say things to people, right? You think of the way, if you've got convictions against, I don't know what, I mean, think of something that stirs people. If you had deep convictions about abortion, and you come across somebody who's trying to convince you or trying to make the case that, you know, in not all cases is abortion wrong and, you know, it's not necessarily, you use the word killing, that's kind of harsh. And then the sense of rightness comes up and you're like, I'm right. And, whoa, whoa, look at this. I've got a verbal club I should start using. Bam, smash, hammer, shred, destroy, right? Or you might better relate to this if you are married, And when you're married, as soon as you're convinced, I'm right on this. I love being right on this. And this one time, I'm right on this. And then all kinds of terrible things can come out of our mouth if we stand on the idea, the the conviction that we're right and they're wrong. So I justify saying and doing anything. And when they object to it, I say, but don't forget, I can say this because you're wrong. And you might say something like this, you're wrong, dummy. Try that one. I'm just giving you ideas. Hey, Ninny, you're wrong. I'm right. So what? So what? So I get to treat you any fleshly, carnally, ugly way I want to? Of course not. When you follow Jesus, it shapes the way you see your rightness, and it shapes the way you see someone else's wrongness. It shapes it. It changes it. And we, could I... Could I just last one, one last alert, one last red alert? Would you be prayerfully sensitive to the possibility that inadvertently you or someone you love is rooting themselves and building their lives on being spiritual, being good, or being right? Would you do that? Would you consider that? Would you think of that? And being right cannot, should not, if you're following Jesus, 
give us freedom to accuse, insult, and condescend people who we believe are wrong, even if they are wrong, right? So, so it makes me ask of the Christians, where's the love, right? It makes me ask that. Where is the love? And this is why this is important. If there's no love, this is vital, this is important, this is crucial, this is a main staple of our Christian faith. If there is no love, here's what the Scriptures teach us. There's probably not a true, authentic, genuine Christian if there's no love. There might be everything else, faithfulness, obedience, um, a lot of spirituality, but if there's no love, right? I mean, it doesn't take long to come across in the New Testament areas where people like John say that if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we belong to Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and if there is no love, you can be sure that person's still dead. And he's not saying physically dead, still has not spiritually come alive yet because there's no love for their brothers, sisters, among the faith family. Don't forget, you remember when Paul's writing, some of you have heard this passage at weddings, and you've heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13 read at weddings. Um, there's so many... There's so many great parts of, um, of that chapter that are worth reading. But at the very beginning of the chapter, do you know Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's talking to a bunch of very spiritual people, very spiritual people, very charismatic spiritual people. And Paul says, hey, I just want to warn you, you might be an annoyingly useless Christian. You might be an annoying, annoyingly, why can't I say that? Annoyingly, can you say that? Annoyingly. Annoyingly. You could say it? That sounded so. You might be an annoyingly useless Christian. Well, that's kind of harsh, don't you think? And here's what Paul goes on to say. He goes on to say, if I understand all mysteries, but I don't have love, if I can, if I can, if I have faith that can look at a mountain and move that mountain into the sea, but I don't have love, if I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all God's secret plans, but I don't have any love, I am a clanging symbol, which is annoying. And I would have gained nothing for me or God's kingdom. I'm useless. And what Paul is trying to identify here is that no matter if you're a theological scholar, you're a culture warrior on the front lines, if you have all the faith that can see God in every rainbow and every cloud that's taken shape, but you have not expressed in your own, from your inner life the love that is evidence of Jesus, it's quite possible that we have ourselves a non-Christian. Now, I don't think that's harsh. I think that's just straight talk. That's straight talk. What, what does this mean? This means that the evidence, one of the evidences, one of the main evidences that you belong to Jesus is that you have the capacity to know, express, and experience the love of Jesus. You look like Jesus in the way you treat other people. So where is this love coming from? Oh, Paul prays this. He says, and may you have the power to understand as all God people should. May you have the power 
to understand, to make sense of, to really grasp, and then I love this, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep Jesus' love is, or I should say God's love is for you in Jesus. So what does that mean? It means it's wide enough to encompass all of humanity, every tongue, nation, tribe, the Jews, and the Gentiles. That's how wide his love is. It encompasses, it doesn't leave anybody out. It means it's long enough to last for eternity. It doesn't expire, no expiration date. It doesn't get to the end, and we're like, well, guess what? Turns out we're short on gas and love from God. Not possible. It goes on for eternity. It's deep enough that it can reach to the furthest rock bottom. And this is what is true for you. If today, this week, recently you felt like, you know what? There is this idea that you can hit rock bottom and you start to lose hope. You don't know where to turn. You don't know how you're going to get it together. And recently you may have thought, I think I'm there. I think I'm close. I've never been this low. Let me me remind you of something. That this word is for you. Jesus' love is deep enough that it reaches down to the bottom of the bottom. In the words of Jonah, who was sinking to the bottom of the sea, Jonah is crying out to God after his wild disobedience. And he's sinking down lower and lower. He gets to the bottom of the bottomless sea. And he calls it Sheol. And he says, I sense the love of God for me even in the bottom of hell as I'm sinking to the bottom in disobedience. And I, I know that you may have gotten to a low point recently. God's love is there and available and reaches so deep, you'll find Jesus snatching people out of the bottom of their hell by his divine love. That's how deep the love of Jesus is. And people speak of that. People who've experienced will speak of that. Who've, who've been braced and saved. And, and also we see how high his love is, right? His love is so high it reaches to the heavens and one day it's going to take us all the way there. It's not just God's love through Jesus, but also he prays that we would experience, may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand it fully. How do I know that God loves me? This is so important, right? When our world starts to get rock bottom, when our things that we wanted and things that we needed and things that we thought we couldn't live without, we start to lose those things, even if it's people that we love, and we ask the question, I'm not sure God loves me. God has always evidenced his love one way, and it is by a self-sacrificing death on the cross. It always answers the question, does God love me? Yes. How do I know? Things aren't going very well. Don't forget, he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still in the middle of our ugly rebellion, Jesus took our place on the cross and doesn't count our sins against us with faith, by our own faith. And you might say, well, how do I experience God's love for me? And the answer to that is several different ways. One of them I'll mention is through the experience that you have among a church family. 
who doesn't judge and categorize you based on your ethnicity, based on what tribe you're from, what nation you're from, who doesn't judge and categorize you based on what you bring to them, but who sees you as someone who's created in God's image, full of the glory of God, his crown jewel achievement of creating In fact, remember Jesus said, again, I'll refer to this, your love for me and your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. He's speaking of having personal experiences among God's church. And I know some of you, this is a whole other message, but we could talk about the hurt that people have experienced together. And I always say, if you don't want to be hurt by people, stay away from all the people, right? That's how you do it. You stay away from all the people. Now, you can't even just stay away from them. You got to shut down all your social media. Like, I tried to stay away. Now I see them digitally. They're trolling me, and they're saying all... So anytime we're near, among, or around people, but God has provided a unique body, a unique family to demonstrate His love, and it's the church family, and He is speaking of personally experiencing that which has been readily made readily available among His church family. Imagine a place where when you offend someone, they forgive you. Imagine a place where when someone hurts you, they approach you and say, would you forgive me for that? Imagine a place where people are transparent to say, I don't have it together. I need God's grace. And you say, so do I. We have a lot in common right at the core. So as God deepens our knowledge of his immeasurable love, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power, completion, fullness. You probably remember, if you, if you had a wedding day of your own, you probably remember, and I think about this sometimes, in uh, August 7th, 1993, I heard Raquel say to me things like, she's going to love me forever, for richer, or for poorer, mostly poorer, in sickness and in health, And then she said, she's going to love me till death does us part. And at the time, it sounded, uh, what's the word? It sounded pretty epic, right? It sounded epic. I, I am expressing my love to you publicly. I am making a vow to you to be with you for the rest of your life until you're dead and gone. But you don't really experience the love that you depend on and the love that you need at that moment, right? It might, the music might be right, the audience might be right, it might create maybe some goosebumps at the moment. But the love that has been expressed by my wife has grown because it's a thousand little moments of loving self-sacrifice over the course of years, and it adds up to evidences and demonstration of real love. I don't feel it, I see it. I don't feel it, I experience it. And this is so important. When you look at Jesus, we don't say, whoa, my hair just blew back with all the love emanating from Jesus. Maybe it did. (laughs) Never has for me. So it's not necessarily a feeling of affection, though it can be, longing and craving and appetite, it can be. It's a knowing. Experiencing the love of Jesus is knowing that there has been a thousand moments that his particular, gracious, humble love has sustained you, touched you, 
healed you, got your mind right, provided the truth that you needed, the hope that you needed, the joy that you needed, rescued you from your own self and self-sustaining. In other words, the love that Jesus provides for us is experience, and we can see it even in the Scripture thousands of times over and over and over again where we see His love over many years, and gradually His love fills our life. Gradually, it is um, full. His accepting, His affirming, His forgiving, His sacrifice... Right there in the Scriptures, we see it and can experience it. And it's always remembered as the most uh, ultimate moment of His love and His glory expressed at the cross there. So, the last part of these power prayers that Paul says, these three power prayers, is this, that we would become complete, really more like Jesus, right? More like Jesus, So for those who are the new humanity, those who have been reconciled into a new human that Jesus is creating, love is the preeminent value. Love is the preeminent evidence. The new humanity of God's family is marked and identified by their love one for another and their love for their Father in heaven, their love for the Gentile, for the Jew, for the Jew, for the Gentile, for the insider, for the outsider. And they need power. They need inner power to do this. And it comes by the work of the Holy Spirit, the spotlight, the Spirit's might, and Jesus is indwelling in us. It enables us to love each other. It enables the insider and outsider to love each other, especially across the deep um, ethnic, cultural, racial divides that had recently separated them. Only the work of the Spirit in us, bringing Jesus alive who dwells you know, so here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to dwell. During, while you're praying, while you're praying for your loved ones, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your neighbors, your coworkers, your teammates, your classmates, whoever you pray for, while you're praying, would you consider dwelling more prayerfully? And would you consider to live more daily in what you already have in Jesus than in what you need from Jesus? What if our prayers sounded like Paul's prayers, right? And now we're free to pray. Why are we free to pray this way? We're free to pray because everything we could possibly need, everything we could possibly want, everything that we could possibly treasure that lasts for eternity has already been provided to us for God's glory and for your good. It's Jesus, the love of God expressed to you, the Creator And we get to pray and ask God to help us know it, see it, grasp it, express it, and experience it. And then we spend less time praying that God would give us stuff that we wish we still had, maybe some stuff that we needed, maybe some material stuff, maybe some other inconsequential stuff. Maybe it would help us to dwell more prayerfully and live more daily in trying to grasp and understand and immerse ourselves in someone that we already have. So we don't miss who we have for what we want. And we can find ourselves rooting our lives, building up our lives, not by focusing on what we need, but by focusing on who we already have. I love this. Here's how Paul finishes. Now, 
All glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father, we pray today that you'd stir up a new affection in our hearts, that the spotlight of the Holy Spirit would help us to see more clearly and love more dearly your son Jesus. We pray that our life would be full and filled immeasurably with this beauty, with this joy, with this fantastic, life-changing love. And I'm prayerful, God, that if there's anyone here who needs a new revelation of your love, they would find it coming clearer and clearer in their heart and mind and the inner life. We know you can do it. We trust you to do it. And we need you to do it. We can't do it on our own. But we pray that you would fill our inner life with new love, the strength that comes from being loved by you. We treasure that. We hold on to that. And we pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.